Let's pray together before we open God's word. Father, this time of the year provides many distractions. And we pray we wouldn't fall into that trap again. We pray that you would uh, help us to keep our focus on you. During a time of thanksgiving, allow us to truly be thankful for all the blessings you've given us, both physical, temporal, and spiritual, and eternal. We pray that during this Christmas time, you would help us to focus on your son, Jesus Christ. You loved us so much that you sent him to die for us on a cross. Help us not be distracted from that focus. Father, holiday seasons, it's not just holiday season are distracting. Life can be distracting. And so, Father, we pray today that you would help us to focus on who you are, what you came to do, and what you came to show us. Help us in the story of Jesus today to see that you want to demonstrate yourself to us in a significant way. You don't want us to stay where we are, but you want us to move forward in a life of adventure with you, a life of blessing, a life of joy, a life of impact. So do your work in our hearts today. Come together, sung together, interacted with each other, and now, Father, uh, online and in Wilkinsburg and Washington and Robinson and here in the South Hills, we want to pray together as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're involved in a series of sermons on the life of Jesus Christ. And our purpose in this series is not simply to gain more information about Jesus, certainly we're doing that, but we want to take what we learn and we want to let that knowledge help us know Jesus more intimately and follow him more passionately and obey him with all of our heart. We started this series by looking at the baptism of Jesus that took place right here in the Jordan River. All of Jesus' ministry is in this piece of land you can fit inside New Jersey. Jesus' ministry started here in uh, the Jordan River as John baptized him, and then Jesus went out into the desert, this area here, to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Then he came out of that area back to uh, Jerusalem where John the Baptist looked at him and introduced him for the first time as the Lamb of God. Remember that? Who takes away the sin of the world. There were a few disciples who started following Jesus at that time, on again, off again. And so Jesus made his way back up north. This is where he will spend most of his ministry. Two of his three years of ministry are spent in the north. So he goes back here, and he goes to Canaan. And you remember in Canaan, they run out of wine at a wedding. And so Jesus turns water into wine, his first miracle, the first of his seven signs in John regarding the Messiah. 
After a brief time in Capernaum, they go back down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there a man comes to Jesus at night. Remember his name? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, how do you, what's the spiritual life all about? How does this happen? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus then heads back up to the north. Normally, he would have gone this route. But remember, he said, I have to go through Samaria. And he had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there at a well, an immoral woman, married five times, living with a man. And Jesus said, man, I've got something to give you, some living water. And you will never be thirsty again. You will never try to have to find your significance in another person or a thing again. This living water will satisfy your very soul. Jesus then went back to Nazareth, and as Scott uh, taught us uh, last time, he, was, uh, he, he went to the synagogue, and he told them, reading from the Old Testament, that he was the Messiah, and they were so excited about it and so pleased with it. You remember, they tried to throw him off a cliff. That's how pleased they were. After that, Jesus went to Capernaum. Not being rejected in Nazareth, he went to this area called Capernaum, a beautiful city just north of the Sea of Galilee, a fishing town, the home of Peter, some other uh, disciples, and the headquarters of Jesus during a large part of his ministry. Take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 5. That's where this story takes place today, Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me set the context for this specific story. It had been a a long and frustrating outing for Peter and his business partners. They were fishermen, and they had worked all night long and had not caught one fish. Absolutely nothing to show for their work. Some of you know exactly what that feels like, don't you? A day, a week, a month, and nothing to show for your work. They were exhausted after a night of work when their boats drifted into the shoreline. And when a boat of a fisherman landed, their work continued. Before they could go eat breakfast or before they could go get some rest, they had to take their nets out. They had to wash the pebbles and the sand out of their nets. They had to lay them out on the beach to dry so they'd be ready for the next day. That's what they were doing when Jesus came and had an encounter with them. Chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, he's standing there with him. By the way, Luke is the only one who calls the Sea of Galilee the lake of Gennesaret, named after this little city right here, this little city right here. And uh, John twice calls it the Sea of Tiberias, named after this little city right here. But most of the time, it's called the Sea of Galilee, and it is a beautiful sea. If you go with us to uh, Israel, and I hope you get to go the next time, there are some beautiful places and some cool places uh, to, to visit over there. But by far, my favorite place is the Sea of Galilee. 
In that area, civilizations are built on civilizations are built on civilizations are built on civilizations. And so when you find something, for instance, in Capernaum, uh, you can see Peter's mother-in-law's home where Jesus healed uh, his uh, mother-in-law. And it is like 15 feet down in the ground through the excavation. Over the years, uh, civilizations have been built on it. Sometimes uh, shrines are built over significant places of scripture. But the Sea of Galilee, no one built a shrine over that. It is still the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus is standing by the Lake of Gennesaret, as Luke calls, or the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. These people knew about Jesus. They knew who he was. They had heard about his teaching. They had heard about his miracles. And they wanted to, to, to be close to him. They didn't want to miss a word. And so the, the, the word here, crowding around, means pressing in. It was getting uncomfortable. They were pressing in. And Jesus was moving further and further back into the Sea of Galilee. So look at verse 2. He saw at the water's edge two boats. And he asked these fishermen, put the boats out into the water just a little ways so I can teach from the boat to the people on the shore. I can just imagine what these tired uh, fishermen were thinking when uh, Jesus asked them to put the boat out into the water. Now, it's important to note that this was not the first time Peter and his business partners had met Jesus. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Gospels, they all tell stories of Jesus from different angles. None of them contradict, but sometimes it's difficult to get the chronology, exact chronology of Jesus' ministry. But most commentators agree that it was Peter, James, John, Andrew, remember, who had gone with Jesus on that first trip up to Canaan. They were there when he turned the water into wine. But at some point, they didn't stay with him. At some point, they went back to their business. They went back to fishing. And so Peter knows Jesus. He's been with him. They have a relationship. And it's because of that relationship that Peter says, okay, I'll take the boat out into the water. And with the boat in the water, Jesus sat down. He, he continued teaching. The lake provided excellent acoustics. The crew was a captive audience, taking in every word from their, from their front row seat. When Jesus finished speaking, when he finished teaching, Peter was ready to take the boat back to shore. But Jesus had a different idea. It's amazing how many times in our life Jesus has a different idea, isn't it? Look at chapter 5, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and, and let down the nets for a catch. Now, Jesus directs this comment to Peter, but it's in the plural. And so he is telling all of the fishermen, let's put this out in the water and catch some fish. Look at the first part of, part of verse five. Uh, Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night long, and we haven't caught anything. Now, you can only imagine what was going through Peter's mind. Probably something like this. Jesus, uh, your teaching is fantastic. It always is. I always get something out of it. But really, going into the deep water is not one of your best ideas. You see, first of all, 
We're exhausted. We have been working all night long, and we didn't catch a thing. Second, every Sea of Galilee fisherman knows that schools of fish feed at night. That's why we've been out all night. It is daytime. And all Sea of Galilee fishermen know that schools of fish feed in shallower, warmer waters, not out in the deep. Now, Jesus, with all due respect, you are a carpenter. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you how to build a house, but don't tell me how to fish. This is not a good idea, and it's not going to work. Have you ever told God that? This is not a good idea, and it's not going to work. Look at the end of verse 5. Look at the submission of Peter. But because what? But because you say so. Man, those are some, some significant words right there. There are going to be times in your life I'll put it personally. There are times in my life when I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. But in obedience, I don't always do that. But when I obey, I'm submitting just because Jesus says so. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Peter submits even though he is convinced that's a waste of time. And you can kind of hear the exhausted crew groaning at the end of verse 5, knowing they have to go back into the deep water where they're not going to catch any fish. Well, just as Jesus told them, they let down their nets. In the daytime, where fish only feed at night, and in the deep, where fish only feed in the shallow water, there's a difference here. What's the difference? Jesus. He's on board. The creator is in the boat. Look at verses 6 and 7. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, check this out, filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. That's full. Look at verse 9. Peter and his companions, they realized that a miracle had just taken place. They were astonished, Scripture says, at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. You see, these were professional fishermen. They knew fish were not in that area. They realized they had just witnessed an honest-to-goodness miracle. They had been with Jesus. They had heard him teach. Uh, they had seen some pretty cool miracles already, probably had seen the, the, chain, the, the water into wine. But here, here is where Peter finally gets it. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful Man, think about that. The boat is filled with fish. And Simon kneels in the middle of those fish, probably up to his waist. 
And he says to Jesus, go away from me. Standing in the light of the world, he sees the ugliness of his heart. And for the first time, he says, I am a sinful man. By the way, that's where conversion begins. Jesus did not come to fix your business. Jesus did not come to put your marriage back together. Jesus did not come to now work with you going through a difficult illness. He will do all those things. But Jesus came primarily to what? Seek and save those who were lost. And it's always a dangerous thing when you come to Jesus just to put your marriage back together. I see this happen all the time. Come to Jesus to put my marriage back together, and when my marriage gets back together, guess what? I'm gone. I come to Jesus to fix my business, and my business starts working well, so I'm gone. Those are not the ways of salvation. The first step of salvation is to say in front of Jesus, I am a sinner. I am undone. My heart is far from you. I need a Savior. That's where conversion begins. That's where Peter's conversion began. Now, he'll help us in all those other areas. But it has to start at the starting place. I am a sinner. Have you come to that point? Have you ever acknowledged that? I am a sinner in need of a Savior. When you do... Jesus will tell you this as he told Simon, Simon, don't be afraid. And maybe some of you are putting that off, coming to Christ because you're afraid. You're afraid of something you may have to give up in your life. You have a relationship you know is not healthy. You have a situation in your life you know is not right. And you're afraid to come to Jesus because you may have to change some things. You may have to give some things up. And where you are right now, apart from him, you can't do that. You cannot do that. None of us can do the things we need to do to become a Christian. The only thing we need to do is to say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And when we do that, then our life is changed. And then we can do everything that God calls us to do. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. From now on, you're going to catch men. I love that. Jesus says, Peter, you think this is cool? You think all these fish are cool? You won't believe what I have for you. Man, you're going to see men and women come to Christ. You're going to see men and women, their life transformed. You're going to see things you have never seen before. And just as God wants to, wanted to do that with Peter, he wants to do it with you. He wants to give you things you have never imagined. He wants to bring joy in your heart you have never experienced. He wants to give you a depth of satisfaction you have never gone to. If you come to him, don't be afraid, he says. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Look what these guys did. So they pulled up their boats on the shore. They left everything and they followed him. These middle-class businessmen left the biggest catch of their lives 
the businesses they had built, the tools of their trade, and they walked away from their security to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. Someone asked me in the first service, what happened with all the fish? I don't know what happened with all the fish. Someone probably came and took them. Don't know. Now, some of you are reading that, hearing that, and you're saying, okay, I get it. That's the deal. When I'm truly following Jesus, I have to leave my business and go into ministry, right? I got to be a missionary or a pastor. That's not what this passage is saying. You are a minister. You are a pastor. You're a pastor right there in your classroom an ambassador for Jesus Christ, right there in your office building, right there on that sales call, right there as you're leading that company, right there in your home as you're taking care of kids, right there in, a, uh, in your medical practice, in the room as you're teaching. Whatever you do, you are a minister. Don't think God is calling you, if you're really serious, about following Christ, you got to leave all that and become and go into ministry. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying right where you are as a minister, follow Jesus. Don't be afraid to follow him there. Be willing to give up anything to follow him. Be willing to share his story anywhere, anytime. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, when I'm with you, you're going to have a ministry wherever you are. You can have things that you've never dreamed of. Appropriately, you can share Jesus Christ in that office, in that classroom, in that dorm room, wherever you are. If you're serious about following him. You know what strikes me about this story? Always strikes me every time I study it. Before Jesus called these men to follow him, what did he do? He gave them proof, right? There's no, I can't find anything in scripture about blind faith. I can't find anywhere in scripture where, where, where we are told just, you know, run off to the end of the cliff, jump off, and that's really faith. Show me that in scripture. That's not what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says. Now, faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Where do you get that confidence? Where do you get that assurance? Because Jesus will give you proof if you're willing to ask him for it. We see that all through Scripture. Jesus gave proof to the rebellious Paul. Remember Paul, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, was on his way to, to Damascus to, to, perse- to persecute the, the Christians there. Acts chapter 9, as he entered Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice to him say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Well, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. He was on his way to persecute Christians, but Jesus stood in front of him with what? Proof. After his conversion, before he was named Paul, he's still called Saul, Acts chapter 9. 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Jerusalem in Damascus by what? Proving that Jesus is the Messiah. All through Scripture, we see God who loves us so much that he graciously gives us proof. Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, do you think Abraham would have believed the covenant God was making with him unless God had caused Sarah to be pregnant with Isaac in her old age? That baby was what? Proof. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, remember, he didn't want to go. But God gave him proof in a burning bush. And then God turned his staff to a snake, then back to a snap. That's hard to say. A staff to a snake and then back to a staff. There I got it. Had to do that. Then the opening up of the Red Sea. Then the plagues. God gave Moses proof. Manna in the desert. Joshua. I love the story of Joshua. Joshua gets to lead the children into the promised land. But he can't go to the promised land because there's this big river in front of him. So what, God, what does God do? He dams up the river. So they go through the Jordan River and they're on the promised land side. But that's the best part of the story. Because after Joshua gets on the promised land side, he looks up and he sees Jericho, only the most fortified city in the known world. And you have to, you have to believe Joshua saying, Lord, thanks for the Jordan River. That was cool. But what about this? How am I going to get through Jericho? God said, I got it covered. You're going to walk around the city for seven days, and then it's going to fall, seventh day, seven times, it's going to fall down. And then you're just going to walk over and take the city. Proof. Would Peter, James, and John have left everything to follow if not for the miraculous catch? Proof. See, I believe Jesus wants to do great things through you. Things you've never even imagined. if you'll let him. And I believe he would like to give you proof that he is worthy of following. I believe he would like to give you proof that he is worthy of calling Savior. And I believe he would like to give you proof that he is ready to take you to another level of your Christian life. If you pray that prayer... He will always give proof. This past week, we had a memorial service uh, right here on Wednesday for uh, Taffy Culp's dad. Taffy uh, leads our uh, Christian education ministry, children's ministry out in our Washington campus. And uh, John Chipman, uh, her dad, uh, was uh, laid right here with a flag uh, draped over uh, his casket. Mr. Chipman served in two world wars, World War II and the Korean War. And while serving, he knew the sovereignty of God. Uh, there was a time in World War II when he was supposed to get on a plane, but the plane had been shot up, had some bullet holes in it. And so they told the pilot to go take it for a, a test flight before they put the men on it. And the plane crashed during the test flight. He would have been on that. In the Korean War, he was with his battalion and uh, his dad had a stroke. And so he came back to the United States uh, to be with his dad uh, during that time. And his whole battalion was wiped out. So God was working in his heart. God was showing him proof 
of his sovereignty. But uh, he didn't trust in Christ just yet. Mr. Chipman knew all about commitment. He was married for 56 years. And uh, the last 10 years, his wife was suffering from the effects of a stroke. And he was with her the entire time. He cared for her the entire time and uh, provided all the parts of her care. After she passed away, um, Taffy uh, moved him into this area to be close to her. He was at Country Meadows. It was a tough time for him. Uh, uh, Mr. Chapman was a proud man. He was very intellectual, Harvard grad. And so there were aspects of the Christian faith that he, that he struggled with. Like Peter, God had shown himself to him, but he hadn't grasped everything yet. Taffy brought him here to the Bible chapel, and, uh, and he was a people person. He had a contagious personality. I love the story uh, that we told at the memorial service. At one point in his life, he sold a Kirby vacuum cleaner to an Electrolux salesman's wife. <clears throat> And they, they tried to hire him. Electrolux did after that. He loved uh, children and young families, and he loved Jack Keebler's adult Bible fellowship class, a class on apologetics, because he was still trying to grasp this truth of Jesus. And in that class, Jack focused on uh, the, the proof that God exists, that the Bible is reliable, and that Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead. Based on what? proof. And it, and it was in the discussion of the resurrection where, where Jesus was crucified. And even extra biblical sources tell us about that man uh, from, uh, from Nazareth crucified in Jerusalem. And, and he was buried in a, in a known tomb. And the, after three days, the tomb was empty. And, and the risen Lord made not one, but 11 post-resurrection appearances as proof that he was alive. And the disciples, based on that proof, changed from, from, from cowardly deserters to men who gave their life for the cause of Jesus Christ, to be fishers of men. And the rise and survival of Christianity came from that little group because they had seen proof. And we're here today because of that proof. At the memorial service, uh, Jack Keebler said this, in the skeptical age we live in, it is more fashionable to doubt than to believe. The believer is seen as gullible, naive. The doubter is viewed as careful, intelligent, as if doubting protects us from the hazard of believing something false. Mr. Chipman saw that it is every bit as hazardous to fail to believe something that is true profound stuff, isn't it? Mr. Chipman saw that it is every bit as hazardous to fail to believe something that is true. Eternally hazardous. How will God prove himself to you? How will he call you to himself or to the next level in your walk? See, God wants you as his son. He wants you as his daughter. He has, he has things for you you could never imagine. He wants you who have been following him for a while and meandering here at this low shelf Christianity. He wants you to crank it up to another step. 
He wants you to make an impact in your world. And if you need it, he will give you all the proof you need. So if you're bold enough to pray this prayer, Jesus, prove yourself to me. Jesus, prove yourself to me. I'm this close to becoming a Christian. Prove yourself to me, undeniably. I, I, I got this confusing situation. I need, to, I need to either do it or something I get out of. I'm struggling. Prove yourself to me. And I promise you, based on Scripture, based on what God has done in the past, that if you pray that prayer, and you're bold enough to pray that prayer, then God will do something in your life, and you'll say, there is no way that could happen except for the hand of God. You willing to pray that prayer? Jesus, prove yourself to me. Kirk's going to come and lead us in a, a last song. Lord, I need you. And as you are singing this song, wherever you are in your spiritual life, God's stirring your heart. Ask God to prove himself to you. Ask God to move in your heart. And he'll do it. And you will know that it is him moving.